case is submitted. <clears throat> we'll hear argument next to number 92602. Spectators are warned and admonished not to talk until you get out of the courtroom. The court remains in session. We'll hear argument next to number 92602, St. Mary's Honor Center versus Melvin Hicks. Mr. Gardner. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, the issue in this employment discrimination case alleging racial discrimination in demotion and discharge is whether, whether a district court is compelled as a matter of law because of a finding of pretext to enter a judgment for the employee, even though he found, as a matter of fact, that there is no intentional discrimination and believed, as a matter of fact, there was no intentional discrimination. The answer to that question is no, because as this court said in Aikens, once legitimate non-discriminatory reasons have been articulated for the employment decision, no presumption operates, and the trier of fact must make a factual determination about whether there was intentional discrimination or not. Aikens rejected a rigid, mechanistic, and ritualistic method of fact-finding a method that I think would straightjacket fact-finders and actually obstruct the truth-seeking process. It rejected a method like the method appearing on page 18 of the employee's brief on the merits, a method, a diagram-type method, which typifies a rigid approach to fact-finding, which should not be taken in employment discrimination cases. This if the employer in a case like this, uh, after a prima facie case has been made, just remains uh, quiet, or he doesn't offer any allegedly neutral uh, ground, is, is the plaintiff entitled to judgment then? In the usual case, he is, Your Honor, because in the usual case, there's no evidence at all of any non-discriminatory reason for the discharge. Well, and, and if the employer uh, offers uh, on its face a... Uh, a neutral, uh, a, a, a neutral reason, and the plaintiff fails to to prove that it's a uh, <coughs> that it's a farce. Uh, <coughs> the case is over. Well, if the employer, I mean, the employer then is entitled to judgment. If the plaintiff fails to prove pretext, yes, yes of course the case is over. But if, but if it, but if the plaintiff proves pretext, proves pretext. Uh, <clears throat> the case he, is not over. Well, you, you think he's not, it's not over? He's in worse position than he would have been if the, uh, if the employer had uh, stayed uh, quiet. Not necessarily, Your Honor. I can imagine some situations where the employer is silent in, in response to the prima facie case, but the case is not over because there are some situations where the evidence of the prima facie case may also contain in it evidence of a non-discriminatory reason, as the evidence in this case in the evidence of pretext contained in it a non-discriminatory reason. 
Well, supposing the employer, after the sh uh, prima facie sh uh, case is made, uh, testifies that uh, my reason for firing the person was not discriminatory, it, it was thus and so. Now, that certainly is, is evidence of a, a non-discriminatory reason. But uh, the, the finder effect isn't required to believe the employer when it comes to the ultimate decision, is it? No, he's not. And he's not required to believe the employee. On the other hand, even if there is a finding of pretext that the offered reason was not the actual reason, the finder of fact has got to decide which one it really believes is, is the actual motive of the employer. Does, does your opponent uh, agree, do you think, that the district court in this case found is a fact that there, the reason for the discharge was not uh, a discrimination on the basis of race? I believe my opponent uh, does not agree with that finding of the district court. But does he agree that the district court made that finding? Yes, he does. Uh, that was a finding of fact that the district court made after he weighed all the evidence, after he made credibility determinations, and he found that there was no intentional discrimination because there was evidence before him which undermined any inference of intentional discrimination and which revealed a motive for the employment decision other than the employee's motive or the employer's proffered motive. But he did, uh, did, he, did, the, did the district trial court find a pretext that the offered reason was pretextual? Yes, he did. He found that the, his words were that the proffered reason was not the actual reason. He did not accept, however, the employee's explanation that the actual reason was a racially motivated reason. So then an, an employer is really well advised to come up with a pretextual reason, as, as your opponent says in his brief. Not so, Your Honor. Well, if you stand silent, you lose, right? In Automatically, because of the prima facie case, you, you, the, you must lose. In the usual prima facie case. Right. But an so better to come up with, but, but once you come up with some pretext, you don't necessarily lose. Then the fact finder can decide, uh, well, even though this was a pretext, uh, um, and even though there was a prima facie case, nonetheless, I just don't basically believe that there was racial discrimination going on here. An employer should never come up with a pretextual reason. It's never in his interest right. to do so. Why, why not? He's got nothing to lose on your theory. Yes, he does. What? Uh, an inference of improper motive discrimination can be drawn from the finding of pretext. That's the common sense rule, part of the rule of McDonnell Douglas. But at least you, you'd have a finding. At least you'd have a fact finder who could make a finding. Whereas if he doesn't come up with a pretext, the game's over. There, there's no finding possible, you tell us, right? The prima facie uh, case governs. Well... That's in the situation of the usual prima facie case, which eliminates all or most mm. common reasons for an action. This is not really the usual case. The plaintiff's evidence in this case, from the very first witness, whether it was in the pretext stage or in the prima facie, case, prima facie stage of the case, presented evidence of a motive other than discrimination and other than uh, the employer's proffered reason. Let me, the let third me, explanation for the employment. May, may I interrupt you for a moment, Mr. Gardner? You've emphasized the usual prima facie case and distinguishing it apparently from from this case. Because I think what you're saying is that in the prima facie, the plaintiff's own evidence, there was another non-racial reason for the discharge. I'm saying that, yes. So does that not mean that your client was entitled to a, have the case dismissed at the end of the plaintiff's case? He should have never been able to make a prima facie case. No, Your Honor, because there was a finding of pretext. 
No, but no, 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 no. I'm suggesting that you didn't even reach the need to determine whether there was pretext if you're correct. If the plaintiff's own evidence provided the basis for finding an alternative ground for 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 discharge, you should have prevailed on a motion to dismiss at the close of the plaintiff's case. I agree with you if we were able to, if we are able to distinguish in these trials when the prima facie case stage ends, when the uh, rebuttal of that begins, and when that ends. It ends when the plaintiff's evidence is in. That's easy. Well, when the plaintiff's evidence is in, it usually contains the evidence of pretext also. We did not try this case in uh, sections, prima facie case, uh, rebuttal, pretext stage, and rebuttal to that. It came in all at once. Plaintiff's evidence uh, had everything in it. Did you make a motion to dismiss it to close the plaintiff's case? I did. District Court. And it was, de- it was denied, but then eventually you won because it should not have been denied, is what you're saying. If we can distinguish in the steps of the case. Well, Mr. Gardner, even though uh, when you proceed here, uh, when a plaintiff proceeds and uh, makes out a prima facie case, the plaintiff does that by showing the plaintiff was fired, that he was qualified as an employee, and that uh, someone of another race was hired instead, right? I mean, that's what we have here. That's a typical case. That's the usual prima facie case. Now, at the so-called end of the plaintiff's case, even if this other evidence may emerge that, well, there was some animosity here, even though it isn't a mandatory presumption at that stage, There still are inferences to be drawn, are there not, from the plaintiff's evidence that he was fired, that he was qualified, that someone of another race was hired instead? That's correct. So, I mean, how would he ever be entitled to summary judgment, even though some other evidence had emerged? I mean, it still is a fact question to be determined by the trier of fact. I I agree with you. And there's some evidentiary value to that evidence, whether or not it's applied in a mandatory sense. I agree with you. Once there is the prima facie case, once there is uh, evidence of pretext, uh, the employee may still prevail if the the district court believed uh, and credited that evidence. In this particular case... So you weren't entitled to summary judgment or, or to a motion to dismiss at the conclusion of the plaintiff's evidence because these other things were in the case. I, I think so, because we tried it all at once. We tried the prima facie case and we tried the pretext well, part of the case all at once. You just take witnesses to tell kind of a chronological story, I suppose. And it, it isn't necessarily parsed out as to this shows the McDonnell Douglas burden and then we get to another. You're going to take the witnesses and find out everything they have to say on the subject. Exactly, Your Honor. Uh, the first witness didn't testify to the prima facie case and sit down and then the employer come and testify, and then the employee came again and testify. Uh, the first witness, Mr. Hicks, testified about everything. Uh, Mr. Right Mr. Gardner, wh- what is the effect of the prima facie case? I mean, maybe, maybe we could avoid the dilemma that, uh, that the other side says exists if the effect of the prima facie case is not to in- entitle the employee to judgment if there's no if there's no uh, response from the employer, no other reason uh, given, but rather just to entitle the employee to get to the fact finder. In other words, it survives your motion to dismiss, but the fact, which means the fact finder may find in favor of the employee, 
But perhaps the prima facie case does not mean that the fact finder must find in favor of the employee. That's interesting, Your Honor. I don't believe that has been the position of the court, however. Well, I, I understand that. But, but we wouldn't be faced with this dilemma, would we? That's true. I'm not asking you to you, know, you, would, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't mind that, having that rule, I don't suppose. Well, I, I'm, not, I'm not here today asking you to, yeah. uh, to, pro, to promulgate that rule because it's not necessary uh, to resolve this particular case. Well, I take it the concomitant of the rule is, is that the presumption would not drop out of the case altogether. The employee, under at least one formulation, uh, might be entitled to always go to the finer effect once he had a prima facie case. That sounds very reasonable. Uh, uh, and uh, we could also say, I suppose, if we were just making up rules, uh, that the burden continues to rest on the employer. To come forward with uh, an articulation of a legitimate non-discriminatory reason, but I don't... the ultimate burden of proof once a prima facie case has been shown. Again, I would say the same thing as I said to Justice Scalia. That has not been position of this court, it has always been that the burden of proof does not shift in the indirect evidence situation that stays always with the uh, employee. employee. It seems to me there's an undercurrent in this case uh, that the employer is not bound by uh, what it says. Uh, It's really a a rather unremarkable principle to say that a party is bound by uh, his own proof, isn't it? Aren't we departing from that somewhat in this case? Well, that is an unremarkable principle. Um, It's not a matter of the employer switching grounds in this case. Uh, The legitimate non-discriminatory reasons we proffered, we believe in and we still believe in today. The fact finder didn't uh, uh, find those to be the actual reasons, and for that reason decided that there was no showing of actual discrimination which is the plainest burden. And I think it's proper for the employer to, to rely upon a failure of proof by the plaintiff, which is what the district court held. Well, how can you call it a failure of proof if what you're really saying is that there was a, an, an, a third reason, it's not the, not the racial reason, not the defendant's reason, but this antagonism? Is that a failure of proof, or is that a finding of an affirmative uh, explanation? Well, it's a failure of proof of racial and motivation. How can there be a failure of proof if you have a prima facie case of racial motivation? Well, because that has been rebutted by the the non-discriminatory reason. Well, but no, it wasn't rebutted by the non-discriminatory reason. It's rebutted by uh, uh, something that the the defendant did not rely on. Isn't that right? Well, the pretext, the the, the finding of pretext was rebutted by the personal animosity. uh, But once the legitimate non-discriminatory reason has been proffered, uh, there's no more presumption which operates. It becomes solely then weighing evidence and credibility determinations and then going to the fact of whether there has been proof of intentional discrimination. Well, if you wanted to fit this more tightly into the uh, McDonnell-Douglas framework, if, if that were thought necessary, I suppose you could say that the judge's finding that the uh, uh, discharge resulted from personal animus was a non-protectual finding of a non-protectual reason for the discharge. That was the factual reason in the view of the judge. It would be a non-protectual reason in the sense that if if one equates pretext with uh, 
intentional discrimination, it would be a non-protectual reason. The district court did not look at it that way. Uh, the district court equated pretext with just not the actual reason and looked at all of the explanations which it had before it from the two parties and uh, from the third reason to determine what the actual reason was. Well, Mr. Was. Gardner, now the, the Court of Appeals didn't really review uh, the district court finding of personal animosity as a reason. It, it instead went off on, on the application of making it a mandatory presumption. That's right. It did not review subsidiary findings of fact. It really did not review yeah. the ultimate So we don't know if there's enough evidence in this record, presumably, to support that district court finding of personal animosity or not, I guess. I, I think you do know that uh, for two reasons. One, the testimony from Mr. Hicks himself and his witness uh, about the personal animosity in a nutshell, it was that his supervisor admitted to him that he was trying to make, a, make him fight. Uh, the, the other evidence which shows that that personal animosity is credible is the explanation rather than the r racial inference is the evidence which undermined the racial inference. Well, but I, the Court of Appeals hasn't evaluated that, and I guess there's no reason why we have to. We, we can deal with the question of whether there should be a mandatory presumption. That's true. Um, you could just say it need not be a mandatory presumption. Just, just so that I understand your position, though, may I ask, uh, were those two items of evidence that you mentioned, the Hicks testimony and I think the employee's own testimony, were they adduced uh, as part of the plaintiff's case before the plaintiff rested? That's correct, Your Honor. It was adduced through the plaintiff himself. He was the first witness. It was the plaintiff's, Mr. Hicks' testimony, and the testimony of a co-employee. So your position is that before the plaintiff's case rested, there was testimony that the firing was due to personal animosity for reasons other than uh, racial antagonism. Yeah, that's, that's true. Well, we don't really know that. We know personal animosity, but he, he could have not liked this man because he was black. All we know is that there was personal animosity. We, we don't know what the basis for the personal animosity was. After the plaintiff rested, the defendant came forward with some evidence, and that is the evidence which undermines the inference that the personal animosity was racially motivated. Uh, that evidence is there was a full-scale change over in the supervisory personnel of the institution. There were six supervisors. But the institution was so poorly run that four of the six supervisors were gone. Uh, Mr. Hicks was not one of the four. But even though there was this changeover in the institution as a whole, uh, the number of blacks employed at the beginning of a calendar year was the same as at the end of the calendar year. The number of blacks hired and fired was at the same at the beginning. The number of blacks hired and fired was approximately equal. Uh, the number of people, th those six people in the supervisory position would have been equally split between black and white after the changeover if one of the person had, a black person had accepted an offer for it. The person who, who showed the personal animosity was not the one in charge of all of these, no, but of all of these decisions, right? No. The, per the person who showed the personal animosity is the one who initiated every employment action that was taken against Mr. Hicks. There was four of them in a month and a half. Against Hicks. So the fact that higher-up people kept the same racial balance that used to be there does not show whether this particular supervisor disliked Mr. Hicks because he was black or not. Also, this particular supervisor did not initiate any discipline 
against Mr. Hicks' subordinates who actually committed the violation, uh, who were also black. He, he apparently picked Mr. Hicks out uh, and excluded other black employees who actually committed the violations, and Mr. Hicks was disciplined essentially for permitting them to commit them. This, Mr. Gardner, um, you have said that you're not asking the court in this case to adopt the view that the prima facie case should be, um, should be uh, regarded merely as a case sufficient to get to the fact finder. You, that might be nice, but that's not what you're asking us to do here. That's, that's right. I'm not asking you Is to Is the alternative then necessarily that what you're asking us to do uh, is is to hold that the that the reasons given by the employer once the burden of going forward shifts uh, need not be ultimately the exclusive reasons that he relies upon uh, to defend the case. In other words, you're you're it seems to me you're necessarily saying that there should not be uh, a requirement for the employer to to raise all possible defenses that he intends to rely on at that time is is that a fair statement of your position? Approximately fair. Um, That's usually as close as I get. But no. <laughs> it's always in the employer's interest to not present a pretextual reason. It's always in the employer's interest to present all the reasons uh, because an adverse inference can be drawn if he does not. Uh, but at the end of the day, when all is said and done, the finder of fact has to determine from the evidence before it what was the motive. And if there's evidence of a third explanation for the motive there, which he thinks is credible and has evidence in the record that lends it to credibility and undermines the racial inference, the finder of fact ought to be permitted to base his decision on that as long then, as there's Then I think you were saying that the employer is not confined to the reasons he gives, even though all of those reasons may, in fact, turn out to be pretextual. The reasons he raises uh, in, in his defense when the burden shifts to him. You're saying say, he is not confined to I those. I would say the trier of fact is not confined to those reasons, so long as they're... Well, why do you split them up? Uh, I mean, you're, you're, you're not simply saying that the employer ought to have the possibility of a wild card uh, in the form of a fact finder who says, well, I think in this instance I'll go beyond the reasons given. Uh, you're saying that's a legitimate thing to do, and if it's a legitimate thing to do, then I can't think of any reason why the employer shouldn't be able to argue it. He said, look, I gave you two reasons, purely pretextual, but I've got some more evidence, and, and uh, is, if you're going to find against me on these two stated reasons as pretextual, let me throw in the rest of the evidence, and, and, and you may find that I've got a third good reason that I haven't mentioned yet. You're saying that that's, that's legitimate. It's legitimate. He, he doesn't sandbag the court and say, well, you're going to find this, and this is the real reason. It's legitimate if that third reason comes out in the plaintiff's case, as it did in this, in this case. The plaintiff knows it's yeah, But if that's the case, then why don't we go right back to the point that I guess Justice Scalia made and say the real error in this case is that there was never a prima facie case made. It can be looked at that way. Let's, let's not monkey with the standards uh, for, uh, for, for raising defenses. If, in fact, the, the very first stage, even that, that is the predicate for shifting to the, the or, or raising the burden of going forward, is not satisfied. It can be looked at that way, Your Honor, because the evidence of the third motive came out in the very first and, place. And if we look at it that way, what have we got here in this case? Just a, just a matter of error correction, I guess. The, uh, the district court's uh, error was in, in failing to see the... Uh, the, the plaintiff's failure in the first instance. 
if it's looked at in that way, uh, that would be the district court's Well, Mr. Gardner, I tried to question you here. Now, the evidence the plaintiff put in included he was qualified, he worked for the employer, he was fired, and someone of a different race was hired in his place. And that is ordinarily enough for a prima facie case. Now, you say that there was also evidence at the time the plaintiff himself testified that maybe there was some kind of animosity going on here. That doesn't wipe out the inferences to be drawn from what would amount to a prima facie case. I don't understand why it wouldn't still go to the fact finder at the end of the day to decide whether the fact finder thought the inferences to be drawn from what would make out a prima facie case here weren't sufficient. The fact finder didn't have to go off on a personal animosity. Maybe he could. That's the issue here. But he didn't have to. It wasn't enough to entitle you to any kind of motion to dismiss at the conclusion of the plaintiff's case. I think the difficulty is trying to pin down exactly at what stage the third explanation came in. If we pin it down that it came in at the prima facie case, case stage. But whenever it comes in, the trier of fact doesn't have to believe that. To make your case, you just want us to say the trier could believe it. Didn't have to. A prima facie case is not dissipated because there is evidence that, if believed, might require a ruling in favor of the employer, is it? No, it's not. It's still there to draw the inference. District court dissipated the presumption, so to speak, and went to the actual question. Well, in Aikens, we said that after all the evidence is in, the presumptions are much less important. It's just a question of did the employer discriminate or did the employer not discriminate? You just look at all the evidence and make a factual determination. I think that's the way the district court looked at it, rather than seeing it as a failure of the prima facie case. What do you object to in the court of appeals judgment? Namely, that the district court was, it was improper for him, for the district court judge, to rule for the plaintiff just because there was a finding of pretext. I think that's it in a nutshell. That presumption has disappeared. It undermines the requirement that there be a factual finding of intentional discrimination. And there's a third explanation in this record. Not all proffered explanations have been. How is it if there's a third explanation that was so obvious to the judge that the defendant never mentioned it? It's kind of counterintuitive. The plaintiff never mentioned it either. It was his testimony and apparently was unaware, like the defendant. The real reason for firing was there was animus there, but the defendant didn't tell the judge that. Nor the plaintiff. And what's your. The plaintiff thought it was racial. I'm sorry. I was going to say, and what's the justification, coming back to kind of the other alternative analysis, what's the justification for allowing the defendant to profit by this if he never raises it as a defense? It's sitting right there in front of him. He never mentions it. Why, as a matter of just sensible procedure, why allow him to take advantage of that? Because the falsity of the justification does not necessarily mean that there has been discrimination. It can be false. Oh, that may very well be. I'm just raising simply a procedural point. Let's get our issues defined. And the way to define our issues is to require the defendant, when the burden shifts to the defendant, to give all the reasons that he may rely on. 
And if he chooses to omit one, particularly one which you claim here was disclosed by the plaintiff's case, uh, why, in effect, should he be allowed to do that? Why not simply adopt a rule that says we want to know what the defenses are going to be, defining the issues before us, uh, at least at the point at which the burden shifts to the defendant? If he does not give that reason, too bad. He can't rely on it. The problem I see with that is that it might straightjacket fact finders. There may be some evidence in there, like this case, where neither what, party look, was the fact aware finder of. is not an independent party here. If, if a defendant did, a, a fact finder is straightjacketed when somebody doesn't raise a defense. Uh, let's, let's not cry for the fact finder. Why, why as a matter of just sensible procedure, do we not require uh, that the defenses be raised and that the person who raises them be limited to them? I don't know, really. Then you well, lose. <laughs> Maybe it's because the, the employer is not likely to come up with some of these answers because they are not rational answers. I mean, you, you come up with the answer, well, this, this, this employee was not working well, and that's why I dismissed him. That's what the employer will come up with. He won't come up with the explanation which you assert was the real case here. Well, for some reason or other, my supervisor just didn't like this guy. I mean, it, you, it's maybe unrealistic to expect the employer to come in with, with such an irrational explanation. Like I said, Mr. Powell initiated all of the employment actions, and the supervisors of Mr. Powell' mistake was was not perceiving it at that time that it was personally motivated. Then, the thing that concerns me, Mr. Gardner, is what does the plaintiff do on rebuttal? He looks at the two defenses or three defenses. Well, I've dis I've blown those out of the water, but I better search the record for any possible other reason that might occur to the judge, and I better cover the waterfront with all sorts of testimony. Won't you get a lot of? collateral issues developed in the rebuttal stage of the case if you have to cover every conceivable reason for discharge, even if not relied on by the defendant? I don't think we have to cover every conceivable reason, only those that have sufficient suggested evidence. remotely by the evidence. He was late one day a couple of years ago. He didn't say good morning to somebody. I mean, all sorts of things could be that you know. Not suggested remotely, Your Honor. Supported by sufficient evidence. Thank you, Mr. Gardner. Thank you. Uh, Mr. Oldham? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, Mr. Gardner, I are in substantial disagreement about the facts and substantial disagreement about what the court below held, the district court held. In regard to the issue of personal animosity, the course we're reviewing the Court of Appeals. Uh, I understand, Your Honor, but he brought and up. And you're defending that judgment. I'm defending that judgment. Yes, all right. And uh, I just wanted to point out this one fact that what the district court held, the plaintiff had failed to prove that personal animus was not the true reason. That's what the district court held. What happened in this situation, we proved the prima facie case. The employer came forward with his two reasons, the severity of the uh, number of disciplinary actions in a short period of time and the severity of a provoked confrontation between Mr. Powell and Mr. Hicks. Then the court went on to find that these reasons were pretextual, and then ignored, I think, the mandates of Green and Burdine. It's a lie. It's false. I think that he gave false reasons. That's a lie, yes. Well, uh, do you think it would be, uh, is it, or, or does pretext really just mean it wasn't that there was another reason? I understand pretext is the way we use it. Pretext is false. It is not the true reason that they advanced a reason which was not accurate, which was not true, which substantially amounts to it was a lie in this particular case. 
That was not the reason he was discharged. And the problem that Mr. Gardner has, he admits that if we prove a prima facie case, and if the uh, defendant or employer remains silent, we're entitled to judgment as a matter of law. He next goes to the next step, if we offer a false reason. Do you think a trial judge in a case like this uh, could reserve his judgment on, uh, on uh, reserve his ruling on a motion to dismiss at the close of the plaintiff's case? Uh, they often do that, Judge. They often uh, defer the ruling on the motion to dismiss. They hear the entire case, and then they make a decision on the, uh, whether or not there should be a directed verdict in the first place. And do you think that uh, don't judges sometimes uh, uh, rule on the motion, uh, although they think we really are going to, we really don't think it's much of a prima facie case, and we may ultimately decide the case because the plaintiff's case was, uh, was I, I deficient? Think the answer to that is yes, Your Honor, because usually in a jury trial case. So making a, just the ruling that there's a prima facie case doesn't necessarily end the fact find, finder's. Uh, Task. No, it does not necessarily end the fact finder's path when that person comes forward with an articulated, non-discriminatory reason. If he doesn't, if he stands mute, makes no statement at all, I think it's clear that under Burdine, he's, the plaintiff is entitled to a judgment. That's the ruling in Burdine. Well, isn't there something to what uh, Mr. Gardner was saying about the way a trial proceeds that you don't say, now we're going to call three witnesses to make out our prima facie case. You put on a witness, you find out as much as you can from him on both sides, and you go on to the next witness. And sometimes you can't be sure at what point the prima facie case has been made out. You know at the end of all the witnesses the plaintiff's called it has. That's right, Your Honor. Uh, when you try a case, you don't try it in this uh, three-stage step like this. We try it from the beginning to the end in a chronological state. Uh, we present our evidence, and we, at the uh, time you're trying the case, you will probably present some evidence of pretext, because the employer has already articulated in some manner or another, as was done in this case, his stated reasons for the uh, action taken, for the employment decision. And you can call the employer as, as a witness if, if you want to. Can I can call the employer as a witness. In this case, we actually had documents which spelled out the specific reasons for the actions taken. They were part of the exhibits in the case. And so that this was part of the pretrial discovery. The, essentially what the uh, state is asking this court to do is to modify greatly the holdings in Green and Burdine. You know, some 20 years ago, uh, Green was argued in front of this court and there was a unanimous decision. And that looked at the Civil Rights Act and said, we want to stop discrimination overt and subtle, and then devised a method of proving discrimination and by indirect evidence. What about Aikens? Do you think that had anything to do with uh, a case Did like that? Did that modify Green and Burdine in this specific area? Well, it certainly said that uh, after the evidence uh, is in, the presumption drops out of the case and you go on. I assume that meant something. That's true, Your Honor. The uh, holding is that once the employer comes forward with a legitimate non-discriminatory reason, that, that, rebuts the presumption of the, that rebuts the presumption, and that presumption drops from the case. However, the evidence remains. The evidence remains, and the inferences that can be legally drawn from that evidence remains in the case. 
Uh, our position is that you start out, as we've pointed out in our brief, with a Green-McDonald-Douglas format, where you start out with all sorts of possible reasons for the actions taken. The plaintiff claims that it's discrimination. You prove the prima facie case, which eliminates some of the reasons. And then the employer is required to come forward and articulate the non-discriminatory reasons. Now, after he has articulated, that narrows the focus down to the question of whether or not these reasons are true or not true. Once you prove pretext, all you have left on one side is discrimination and the false reasons given by the employer. And my position is, and the position we have taken is, that this entitles us to judgment as a matter of law. And that's what the Court of Appeals held. In your, the your rule is, I take it, that if, if once a prima facie case is made, uh, then the court must rely on the employer's explanation if there is to be a ruling for the employer. He must rely upon the articulated, legitimate, non-discriminatory reasons. Uh, the purpose of the whole thing is to focus and narrow the inquiry from all possible reasons down to the ones that the employer says he relied upon. Once you prove their faults... Does this sort of rule exist in any other area of the law? I think that this is fairly unique, Your Honor, because of the prodigy of Green, Burdine, Ernco, and all the cases that have followed. It's a product of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, where the Congress declared it was one of the highest priorities that we had was to eliminate discrimination, both overt and subtle. And in Ernco, this court recognized that it's kind of hard to get into the minds of individuals, that you have to devise a method of reaching the results of proving discrimination. And the court has devised this process of dis proving discrimination, and this is what we thought when we uh, tried this Hicks case. We used so this, this is really shifting the ultimate burden of proof, it seems to me. The no, Your Honor, fact, I don't think Green just, says that that's not what happens. It, it seems to me that that's what's happening here. If there's evidence in the record from which a trier of fact in an ordinary case could find for the employer, the court's prevented from doing so. Your Honor, if the state or the employer doesn't project or articulate the legitimate non-discriminatory reasons, it's our position that the trier of fact shouldn't search the record and come up with his own articulated reasons, that the articulation is responsibility of the employer. What if, what if the plaintiff, in the course of his testimony, had uh, offered uh, evidence of a facts which would have justified a conclusion that there was a non-discriminatory reason for his firing? If the plaintiff makes an admission that uh, the reason for the discharge was non-discriminatory, no, but he doesn't, I'm not saying he makes an admission as if these were pleadings. We're talking about testimony, not, not uh, defenses and complaints and so on. Supposing the plaintiff gets up and testifies that I was fired because I was black and the, um, I know the employer didn't like blacks and he wanted to get rid of me. But also in the course of his testimony, he gives evidence of facts which would justify a finder of fact and saying, well, look, I see that the reason was uh, not because he was black, but because thus and so. Your Honor, I think the answer to that is, is that the Burdine test requires the 
employer to articulate the reasons. And we have to have a full and fair opportunity to meet those reasons. And so I would say that if evidence is brought forth, it might go to the issue of pretext, but it doesn't necessarily defeat the plaintiff's case. Yeah, but, uh, I, I joined the Burndine opinion. I never thought of it as just imposing a totally different regime on this particular type of trial as they're opposed, imposed on all other regimes of time cases. I mean, you can have evidence that comes out in the plaintiff's case from the plaintiff's own mouth that will be favorable to the defendant. And that that's ordinarily something that a trier of fact can take into consideration. That's, that's true, Your Honor, and you can have evidence come from the defendant that's favorable for the plaintiff. But, but in your view, under the Chief Justice's uh, submission, he could not, the, the trial trial fact could not take into account uh, adverse inferences from the employee's own testimony uh, so long as the employee makes that a prima facie case. Your Honor, I still go back to the requirements in Burdine. That, that, that's correct, isn't it? Yes, Your Honor. I, I don't see how a... It seems to me very a fair opportunity to meet the uh, allegations of the employer, the non-discriminatory reasons announced by the employer, unless he has a full and fair opportunity to meet those. And uh, in this situation, I don't agree that that happened, but I understand the hypothetical. Well, why should this be different than a negligence case? You know, the plaintiff gets up and testified, you know, I slipped and fell, and there was a... It was icy, and there was, the employer failed to shovel the walks. Well, again, the plaintiff in that sort of a case can testify in a way that would entitle a jury to find there was no negligence. And we don't say that because it came out of the plaintiff's mouth, it somehow the defendant didn't have a fair opportunity to rebut it, or the plaintiff didn't have a fair opportunity to rebut it. Your Honor, this is different from a negligent case. This is a race case which has brought about by specific legislation of Congress which was designed to defeat and change uh, certain patterns. Do you, do you think Congress intended that the, the fact-finding process in these cases should be different than the fact-finding process in all other sort of civil litigation was? All I know is, Judge, is that in Green and versus Burdine, Green and Burdine, the court did set up a method of indirect proof and a specific process, which this court has recognized for a long period of time, and I think that it is unique. It's a little, a little different from a well, negligent case. The, the, it, it's unique in the, perhaps, although I'm not so sure it's that different than race ipsa loquitur or something like that in negligence cases, that if the plaintiff shows certain elements, he's entitled to have the finder of fact made, make a determination in his favor. But I think you're adding on to it a lot. When you say that testimony that comes in during the trial can't be used for purposes that it would be used for in every other sort of a civil proceeding. In the course of cross-examining the defendant's uh, witnesses uh, in order to prove pretext, the, uh, it turns out that uh, there was personal animosity. Uh, uh, do you think uh, just because uh, the defendant or the plaintiff proves pretext by that evidence uh, that it's entitled to judgment and that the court is, uh, is disentitled to say, well, it may be pretext, but uh, there really is a neutral reason, a race-neutral reason for, for the discharge. Yeah. Is the court forbidden to do that? I think that the court is bound by the issues that are rejected by the parties. That's not unusual at all okay. to say so that. Your answer is yes. You yes, Your Honor. Yes, all right. The answer is yes. May I ask you, in this case, 
Did the defense counsel argue to the judge that the real reason was personal animosity? Uh, judge, he did not. The first time the personal animosity was mentioned was from January 1984 till January of 1991 when the decision came down. Prior to that time, there had been no mention of personal animosity except the statement of Mr. Powell that there's nothing personal. When he was asked if there were any difficulties between him and the plaintiff, Mr. Powell said there's nothing personal. That's the only evidence there is that in the case, that case says that uh, Mr. Powell said there was nothing personal. Did you try the case for the plaintiff? Yes, I did, Your Honor. Did you try to put in any evidence that there was no personal animosity? Did you try to rebut this uh, potential uh, real reason for the... No, I didn't, Your Honor, because I felt that the, under the McDonnell-Douglas Burdine test that the employer was required to articulate the non-discriminatory reasons to give me a fair opportunity to meet those. I wasn't in a position to meet every possible uh, facet that might arise in a case, whether or not he was... You think it would have been permissible as a matter of procedure for the defendant counsel at the end of the cross-examination say, now our witnesses have said reasons are A and B, but the cross-examination has, real, uh, has brought out the fact that it's, uh, it's a uh, animus was the real reason, and we're going to rely on that in closing argument. Would that have been permissible? I don't believe so, Your Honor. Uh, you have to say that, I think, to, the, to support your theory of the case. I've had cases, Judge, where we've uh, tried it and uh, we fully tried an issue other than the issue that was originally focused. And there was a motion made to amend the pleadings after the trial. Uh, that's very, very rarely done. It's only when there's been a full trial on those issues. And here we did not have a full trial on that issue. Well, the, the, rule, the federal rules have a provision that if an issue not in the pleadings is tried by consent of the parties, there the pleadings are deemed amended, don't they? That's true, Your Honor. That's true. That does not happen in this particular case. Why well, would, if we, uh, if we reverse the court, the court of Appeals on its theory, it sounds to me like you would all, you would still win because there wouldn't be enough evidence to support the uh, finding of animus. Well, I will point out to the court that we did raise issues of the fact that uh, one of the complaints had to do with retaliation that wasn't ruled upon, that um, another complaint had to do with the fact that we alleged there were errors. And well, did you argue in the Court of Appeals that the district court was wrong in, uh, in, uh, that, uh, in ruling on the basis of animus because there wasn't enough evidence of it? Uh, that's correct. And actually, the Court of Appeals looked at that and said there were it was wrong for the district court to assume without any evidence to support it that there was animus involved. Uh, we raised that point, but the court did not rule on that issue. It ruled on the question of whether or not the judgment is compelled. And yes. we believe that that was a right ruling under Burdine and a right ruling under Green, and that this court should sustain that decision. But if we disagree with you, the Court of Appeals on remand would address that, and you might still prevail. That's, that's possible, Your Honor. But... I think it's important that we set a procedure which trial attorneys, everybody else, employers can rely upon in terms of determining how you go about proving discrimination. Do we have to add an additional step that many of the courts have not recognized in terms of uh, pretext plus, or can we rely upon pretext as a means of obtaining a proof of discrimination? And, uh, well, you still would have the inferences to be drawn from that evidence. That doesn't ever leave the case, does that's, it? That's true, Your Honor. So, of course, you can rely on the inferences to be drawn from that evidence. 
That is correct. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Oldham. Mr. Dumont, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. May it please the court. Both Burdine and Aikens explicitly state that at the final stage of the McDonnell-Douglas analysis, the plaintiff can carry his ultimate burden of proving discrimination in one of two ways, either directly or, and I quote from both opinions, indirectly by showing that the employer's proffered explanation is unworthy of credence. Well, to say that he can, the plaintiff can carry the burden uh, to me means nothing more than the, the, the finder of fact would be justified in ruling in his favor. With respect, Your Honor, we would disagree that that is what Burdine said. And we think that is not what Burdine ought to say. Because Burdine and Aikens, the whole line of cases, set up a sensible and orderly system for getting at the ultimate issue in these cases, which is discrimination. Now, it's clear that in some cases a plaintiff will have direct evidence and therefore can use the first option of persuading the trier of fact directly that there was discrimination. But Burdine sets up the second and indirect method of proving discrimination, the proof of uh, that the employer's reasons are unworthy of, of credence, uh, precisely because in many discrimination cases there will not be direct evidence. And we would suggest that on Excuse the me, but, but you're, you're proposing going beyond that. I mean, you're, you're, what you're saying is not only that he may prove it that way, but that it must constitute proof, that, that the trier of fact must accept that as adequate. You don't have to go that far to solve the problem you were just talking about. But you do contend that it goes all the way, and it says the trier of fact must make that finding. We believe that when the uh, defendant has articulated particular reasons right. for its actions, and the plaintiff has disproved to the satisfaction of the trier of fact those reasons, right. it is mandatory for the court or the fact finder to return judgment for the plaintiff. Uh, we think Verdeen uh, well, holds that. And what other the case? Uh, and Aikens. A a a Aikens said, as I recall, when all the evidence is in, we, these presumptions are not nearly as important. We simply try to decide, was there discrimination here? That's correct, uh, Mr. Chief Justice. Aikens says that once there was a full trial, as there was in this case, that we go straight to the issue of discrimination. The question is, how is the plaintiff uh, able to prove discrimination? We would say that both Burdine and Aikens, which reiterated the language from Burdine, say that he can prove it in two ways, either directly. There's no question about the way he can prove it. But what you're arguing is that certain elements brought forth by the plaintiff not only permit a finding by the finder, but it requires them. I don't think Aikens said that. That, that is what we're saying, Your Honor, and let me uh, say why. We think that once the defendant has come forward with specific reasons, after all, this information is uniquely within the ken of the defendant, once the defendant has come forward and articulated particular reasons, uh, reasonably, specifically, and clearly, as uh, Burdine says he must do, that the plaintiff's burden is set as a sort of matter of orderly judicial procedure. That is what the plaintiff then has to contend with, and both for the benefit of the plaintiff, giving him a full and fair opportunity to meet the defendant's case, and for the, def and for the benefit of the court in uh, ensuring that the adversarial fact-finding process proceeds in the way that will generate a true result. You can't get a true result under the circumstances, for instance, of this case, where the entire case was tried uh, on the issue of whether 
uh, the defendant's disciplinary reasons were were not valid. And the court, on its own, came up uh, with a, a reason uh, which really has no support at all in the record. Well, you, you, do, you do have, I mean, these cases are tried under the same sort of federal rules of civil procedure that other cases are tried under, are they not? That's correct. And you have a complaint and an answer. I suppose a, a defendant might, in the form of his answer, waive certain. De- but if, if the defendant simply denies generally that he discriminated and he has never been pinned down by any interrogatories or, or depositions, uh, why should it be different than any other kind of case? I mean, you, you, uh, so, so I get the impression from hearing uh, your co-counsel you, as if at a each point after, after a witness testified one of these cases, the, the counsel must stand up and say, well, now this witness proved this. And that's just not the way cases are tried. No, not at all, Your Honor. We think that the functional test here is the test that Burdine sets out, which is a reasonably clear and specific articulation by the defendant of particular reasons why it took its action to meet the prima facie case. And, uh, and then a full and fair opportunity for the plaintiff to contest those reasons. Now, they can emerge at any time during the trial. They do have to be reasonably specifically articulated. But it might happen during the trial. It might happen on, uh, out of something that came out of the plaintiff's evidence. But we do think the defendant would be required to step up to the plate and accept whatever reasons it's planning to rely on. That defines what the uh, plaintiff will try to rebut. And that defines what the, what the decision maker well, will have a full well, well, What, what if the on. defendant files an answer to the Title VII complaint denying generally that it discriminated? And that is never further amplified by deposition discovery. Now, at the time of trial, why should that suddenly be transformed into something that's quite different than is set up by the pleadings? Well, if, in fact, the defendant offers no specific articulation of why it took the action that it took, aside from a general denial of of discrimination, we would submit that under Burdeen, the defendant would have to lose. It has not carried its burden of rebutting the prima facie case. Well, that, that, that may be true, but... What you're saying is more than that. You're saying that if the defendant, if witnesses testify that these were the reasons that the uh, the plaintiff was fired, they were non-discriminatory, that those and only those can be considered by the finder of fact, even though there was a general denial in the in the answer. Yes, we believe that the the point is to frame the issue really for the trial that's court the or pleading. the fact finder. But that's the point of the pleading. Well, it's also the point of the trial. As you, as you pointed out before, the, the pleadings are amended effectively to conform to the proof at trial by the end of the trial. When you get to the end of the trial, as Aiken says, you should take all the evidence taken together and make a decision on the question of discrimination. Now, the question is, what does the plaintiff have to prove? And we submit that it's unreasonable to make the plaintiff try to disprove, which is exactly what the petitioners contend, try to disprove every possible non-discriminatory reason for the action. Well, doesn't the, isn't that thinking? contained ordinarily in the burden of proof? If, you're a, if, if you have to prove uh, element A, you have to exclude other hypotheses. I think that the, the burden of the court's opinion in Burdine is that as a way of getting these very complex cases where, after all, any reason or a completely arbitrary reason would be legitimate so long as it is not one of the prohibited reasons. Uh, in order to distill the potential mass of evidence down to a manageable uh, uh, framework for the court, it's perfectly uh, reasonable to ask the defendant to come forward and say, well, what did happen here? You know, what did happen here? Allege your reasons, and then allow the plaintiff a full and fair opportunity to meet those reasons. What strikes us as uh, fundamentally unfair to the plaintiff and unwise from the point of view of accurate fact-finding is to say that once the plaintiff has met the, plaintiff's, the, the defendant's articulated reasons, 
the fact finder may then range through the record and pick out some uh, reason, either pick out a reason, which may be what happened here, and say, well, we, I think this is more likely. Uh, when the plaintiff Mr. Dumont, not. we don't know if that's how the Court of Appeals would, uh, whether the Court of Appeals would sustain that finding of the district court. I thought our inquiry here was just whether it's a mandatory presumption or a permissive one at the conclusion of the case. I thought that was all we had to decide. That is what you have to decide, Your Honor. And why can't it just be a permissive one? All that evidence and the inferences from it are still available to the plaintiff employee at the end of the case. That's correct. I think what we need to look at is what is in the case at the end of the case. The plaintiff has proved a prima facie case. The defendant has articulated certain reasons. The plaintiff has, by hypothesis, disproved those reasons to the satisfaction of the trier of fact. All that is left in the case is the evidence supporting the prima facie case, the evidence that the defendant has lied or is unwilling or unable to come forward with a credible reason for its actions, and essentially nothing else. Now, on those facts... We don't know whether it's nothing else. The district court thought there was something else, but the Court of Appeals didn't really face up to that. There can only be one of two other things. Either evidence that came in in the plaintiff's case, which I submit is not true here, and the, and the, the Court of Appeals was quite clear about that. They said it was merely an assumption, this, this personal animosity thing. Or evidence that the defendant has somehow introduced or that seems to arise out of the evidence, but the defendant has been specifically unwilling to embrace, uh, as is the case here. Um, and we would submit that it's not a sensible rule of judicial procedure to allow a fact finder to go off on that ground when the defendant has refused to embrace it. It seems to me that one problem we have in these cases is that clauses are not always clear. It may be that this person was late. It may be that he did have disciplinary problems. Uh, it may be that those uh, were partial underlying clauses, uh, but it may be that the substantial cause for the firing was something that the court figures out in retrospect in a way that uh, even the employer himself uh, or itself uh, could not ascertain uh, with great accuracy. And it seems to me that uh, to say that uh, a, a, there's, there's a pretext only when there's a lie is, is inconsistent with the way civil trials usually proceed. Uh, we don't believe that it's inconsistent in this case, Your Honor. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Dumont. The case is submitted.